For this evening, I'd like to talk about conditioned existence. It's said in Inside Meditation, there are three big insights that folks have right away when they come to meditation retreats, such as this. And the first one is that um, you can experience unpleasant sensations in your body when you're sitting, uh, especially for the amount of sitting that we do in this kind of retreat. Second big insight is that our mind wanders. And the third one being that in general, insight meditation or meditation is not so easy. I think that a lot of people when they first think about doing meditation um, have a thought that it might be easy until they do it in an intense way such as this and find that it's, it's quite a big challenge. It's not uncommon when people come to retreats to say that this is the most difficult thing that they've ever done in their life. And sometimes I think teaching a retreat like this, it's absolutely the most difficult thing that I do in my life. Um, and uh, But the insights that we have into ourselves is ultimately is more and more freeing to us. Today I want to talk about conditioned existence as it relates to, especially to the four foundations of mindfulness. Um, so I'm going to talk around body and feelings and mind and, and mental objects. And then we can open it for some discussion if you wish afterwards. First of all, our body. Our body is a conditioned instrument or conditioned elements. And when you sit, you can feel so much tension in your body. A lot of that tension is embedded in the body, um, conditioned into the body. For instance, with your breathing, if you feel tightness in the diaphragm muscle, a lot of this tightness in the diaphragm muscle is due to emotions and emotional holding. And that when um, we grasp and hold to certain kinds of emotions, of fear or anger, whatever, it affects the musculature of our body. And so experience difficulty in breathing, for instance, or pain in the shoulders, pain in the back, pain in the head. You know, a lot of this is conditioned. And conditioned because of mental and emotional responses to things. And some of it has to do more with the physiological makeup of the body. Because the body is conditioned by the air that we breathe, the foods that we eat, um, you know, the amount of sleep that we get, you know, getting up at 5.15 in the morning. If you haven't had enough sleep, you feel the effects of it on your body. If you overwork yourself, and you start to feel stress within the body. The body is conditioned by how we live and what we take into ourselves, what we ingest into ourselves, the kind of water that we drink, etc. And that's why there's so much concern about the environment, not only what we're doing to the environment, but how the environment is ultimately going to affect us as human beings living on the planet, because everything is conditioned and interrelated this way. 
So when we look into ourselves in meditation, we experience the conditioned nature of the body. And through doing, for instance, the pranayama practices, the breathing exercises, helping to release tensions in the breathing. That's part of the reason why we do the pranayama. And some people wonder, you know, what's, why do we do pranayama? What do we do with the breathing? What, what's supposed to be the effect of it? And part of it is to help to open up the breath body, which can be sometimes tight and um, restricted. So being able to breathe into different parts of our body into the abdomen, into the rib cage, into the chest, expanding the breath um, helps to open the breath body so that you take a fuller, deeper breath so you can breathe with more ease, which affects directly the condition of the mind. When your breathing is able to be free and there's not a lot of tension and tightness in that and your mind is able to follow easily the flow of the breath and has direct impact upon the mind. That the mind becomes more calm, the mind becomes more tranquil because there is this direct relationship between the body and the mind, that the body conditions the mind this way. Also in the yoga practice, um, stretching and bending, um, perhaps you can sense a difference in the sitting right after the yoga, when you come in here, that there is an, an ease of sitting that you may not have felt before. And some of that is because tension is being released in the body. Um, and it, build, it, it builds up when we do so much intense kind of sitting. Tension can build and build and build because you're in one posture, you're still, and uh, sometimes just holding the meditation posture um, that a certain amount of tension is involved just in that. And besides the emotional, mental experiences that are taking place that are also, if there's reaction within the mind, if the mind is reacting to the mental and the emotional experiences, then again, the body can start to tighten as a result of that. So the yoga is a way of helping to release um, some of the tendency to hold and tighten and seize within the body. And so when you come up after doing some yoga and pranayama, you might just find it easier to sit because the energy can move more freely through your body. It opens with the pranayama and with the yoga. It has that kind of opening and releasing effect. And when the body is more open this way, when the energy can move freely through our body, then again, the effect upon the mind is that the mind has more of a sense of um, spaciousness and stability and calmness. Awareness of the body is very, very important. Important because when you're focused in on your body, when you're experiencing deeply the body, it's very grounding to the consciousness, especially in relationship to Vipassana meditation. And sitting here like this and having the eyes closed, oftentimes the uh, experience is that people experience a lot of images and a lot of thoughts. 
And because the thoughts and the images can be, can be very strong, um, and if the awareness is not also strong at the same time, what tends to happen is we get swept away by the content of our mind, get swept away by the thoughts that we're having, by the images that we're having, by the emotions that we're experiencing. So easily, people, especially with the eyes closed this way, people get kind of caught and carried away by the mind and to a certain degree lose touch with the body itself. There's a kind of ungrounding that takes place. The other thing that can happen is because the sensations can be so strong in the body in doing this amount of sitting, is that when pain starts to arise in the body, there can be a tendency of the mind to want to move away from the pain. Even an unconscious movement away from what is painful in the body, what is unpleasant in the body. So in that moving away from the body, you're moving out of the body, so to speak, and more into the mental realm. And that movement away from the body into the mental realm, for some people, can be somewhat ungrounding. So the um, emphasis on remaining in the body, feeling the body, is extremely important. In the first monastery that I, that I was living in in Thailand, it was situated in a, the middle of a cemetery. Um, it was a, a cemetery before it became a monastery. And in Asia, they run out of land, you know, to build things on. So you have to kind of build structures on what is already there. And that was the case with this, with Wat Tao Kot in southern Thailand. They wanted to build meditation center behind what was already an existing monastery on the other side of the road. So there was a cemetery and decided that they could build lots of huts around the outside of it, and they put a cremation tower in the middle of the monastery where they would have cremations on a regular basis, which was an interesting practice. Um, and at, the, on, on, at certain places, like one, one of the loudspeakers was on one corner of the cremation tower, and there was a couple of other loudspeakers in different parts of the monastery. And every morning, and a number of times during the day, Ajahn Damodaro, who was a teacher in this monastery, would get on the microphone and he would say in Thai, Hen gai nai gai, hen vedana nai vedana, hen chit nai chit, hen tam nai tam. And what that means is see the body in the body see feelings in feelings, see the mind in the mind, see the dharma in the dharma. And he would start at four o'clock in the morning with this. And he would talk about, you know, he would give like short discourses, but the thing that, especially if he didn't speak Thai, the thing that was most familiar all the time was this hen gai nai gai, hen vedanai nai vedanai, hen chit nai chit, hen tam nai tam. And that's the first tie that you learned, right? Because it was repeated over and over. And what he was saying is, see the body in the body. Now, seeing the body in the body means to experience deeply the nature of your body. It doesn't mean to separate yourself from your body. 
It doesn't mean to have it outside of yourself in some way, but rather to directly investigate and explore the body. And what we're doing here is exploring the body in, in the realm of sensations that arise in our body, you know, and the energy of our body, and the breath, that all belongs in an aspect of our body. So you penetrate into the nature of the body, seeing the body in the body, moving deeply into the sensations of the body. As you move into the experience of the body this way, seeing how sensation in the body is in relationship to different mental experiences that arise. Because in experiencing sensation in the body, the conditioned nature of existence is that experiencing the sensation in the body, it will oftentimes give rise to a feeling within the mind. This is how body, one way that body conditions mind. So that if we experience an painful or unpleasant sensation in our body. The conditioned response to experiencing that unpleasant sensation in the body is that it gives rise to an unpleasant feeling within your mind. That's the direct conditioned response that we normally have. If you're sitting and you start to feel pain in your knees, usually you don't feel real happy about it. You know, a lot of joy usually doesn't arise as a result of that. Right? But usually the conditioned response in that moment is aversion, is negativity within the mind. Because an unpleasant sensation in the body, if, is, if it's grasped hold of, if it's clung to, gives rise to unpleasant feeling within the mind. So if we're sitting and there's pain in the knee, unpleasant sensation, and is grasping hold of it, then negative thoughts can start to arise within the mind. Negative thoughts about meditation, negative thoughts about yourself, negative thoughts about me, you know, wherever you wish to direct, you know, your negativity, you know, the person next to you, you know, but negative feelings start to arise within the consciousness, which is a direct response to what we're experiencing on a physical level. So it becomes a great challenge, for instance, for people who are in a lot of constant pain, chronic pain, who have pain all the time. There is a, a um, clinic in, at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center in, in Worcester that's led by um, a meditation teacher named John Kabat-Zinn, and he works with chronic, people who are in chronic pain. And these people have gone through the whole gamut of traditional allopathic practices in a way to try to alleviate their pain. And as a last resort, they're sent to this pain clinic. And John teaches them um, meditation, and he may also teach them yoga, I believe, as well. And the emphasis in, in this program is what is your relationship to your body and what is your relationship to pain? You know, because 
sometimes we cannot change the nature of the body because the body has a life of its own. The body is born. It goes through many, many, many different kinds of changes. You know, and we experience pain, we experience illness, we experience disease. That's the nature of the body itself, and ultimately it dies. So in this whole process of change and transformation, it, you know, we, you know, it just reveals more and more to us that the body is something that has a life of its own. We may not wish to have gray hairs. We may not wish to, you know, get holes in our teeth or whatever. But the, the nature, conditioned nature of the body is that it goes through all of these different kinds of changes and effects. And so these people who are in, in, in uh, acute pain, in chronic pain, what the emphasis that is given to them is to watch your attitude towards the pain. You know, using meditation as a way of being able to open and accept what is there and how to work with that on a mental level to bring in more acceptance and more spaciousness and more openness to the process that the body is going through at this particular time. And it's very, very similar to what we do here in meditation where in, you, you may experience, say, a pain in your head, okay, and it's there, and it's constant. One person who came to the discussion group said each time he comes to the, to the Insight Meditation Society, he gets this throbbing kind of pain right here in his head. When he meditates at home, it's not there, you know. Only when he comes to this place, all of a sudden, on one side of the head, there is this kind of throbbing pain. There's nothing that he can do about it, except, you know, see how the mind is reacting to it. What is the conditioned response that the mind is having to the nature of the body at any particular time? Even as we get older, and we, in the years kind of go by, 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 you know, the 30s go by very quickly. And you hit 40, and then, and then, you know, years go by very, very fast. You see all of these kinds of changes going on inside of your body. If the mind wants to hold on to the way you felt when you were 20, or the way you looked when you were 25, that creates suffering within the mind. There has to be this kind of true acceptance of the nature of the body and how it's going to change and how it's going to unfold. And see that it is composed of elements, you know, that are in interaction and changing and that it does have this life of its own. And that when we're able to relate to it that way, that it brings more spaciousness and freedom into our life. So, hengai naigai, see the body in the body. And then, hengai naigai, see the feelings in our feelings. 
feelings. As human beings, we have feelings, an important part of life. Coming into a retreat, you know, have feelings of expectation and anticipation, oftentimes is what um, people come seeking a certain kind of experience when they come to a meditation retreat. This is not unusual at all. And sometimes we have that kind of experience, but usually we can have quite a different experience. And it's the willingness for us to open to the experience that we're having, which is extremely important, not only in meditation, but in every aspect of our life. Because life brings us, you know, the experience that in that particular moment is appropriate for us to have. And if there is that willingness to open to what is, then it saves a lot of friction and tension within the mind. Truly speaking, it's easier to accept what is than to not accept what is and to wish for something else. But it's, you know, in the mind, our anticipation or our desire or what we want to happen that prevents us from having that deeper, more expansive kind of accepting attitude. And it's that way with feelings. So when we come here, we have feelings of attraction. Attraction, perhaps, to other people. Attraction to somebody who is pleasing to our eye. Someone who looks attractive to us, and there's an attractive force. There's a pleasant feeling in our mind. And when there's a pleasant feeling within the mind, there's a force of attraction that is taking place. Um, you know, we may like the way somebody does their walking meditation. <laughs> we might be real clumsy, you know, feel awkward doing this stylized walking meditation. And you see somebody who's, you know, walking straight, you know, and very present, very calm, you know, right there. And you like that. There's a kind of attractive feeling that arises within you. And then you see somebody else who looks more like you when they walk. <laughs> An aversion arises in the mind, you know, because you don't, we don't accept ourselves. We don't accept, you know, the way that we walk. We want it to be different than the way that it is. And then when somebody reminds us of that, we, we, can, we feel aversion. Or you look at somebody and they remind you of somebody who you had a lot of tension with in a relationship um, several years back, you know, and just looking at that person and the way they look and all of a sudden you feel some aversion. Or you have to wait online in the dining hall. The food's not out there on time. You know, and it happens, you know, a couple of times in a row. You know, we, we have, some, we have some, new, some newer cooks in the kitchen, and sometimes, you know, it just takes a while to kind of get everything into the flow of preparing the meals and getting it out on time. It's to be expected, especially in cooking such large numbers as we do in a retreat like this. But you don't know all of that. And you're hungry. You've been meditating hard. <laughs> all day, you know, and you want your tea, 
and you're standing there, you know, and sometimes I just, I look at people, you know, <laughs> just wonder what's going on in their mind, you know, and I think it probably uh, some degree of negativity, you know, aversion arising during that time. It's natural in a way because it's conditioned. When we want something and we don't get what we want, that unfulfilled desire oftentimes leads to frustration, anger, disappointment, you know, all of those kinds of feelings within ourselves. Same thing with our sitting practice. In our, we have, so to speak, a good sitting. You know, where we feel calmer, we feel more concentrated. We label that to be a good sitting. You know, we're not feeling a lot of bodily pain, the mind's pretty steady, not being overrun by thoughts and images, etc., etc. So we have a good sitting, you feel happy about it. You just feel happy inside feel positive reinforcement, which is fine. And then in another sitting, perhaps the very next sitting, all of a sudden the tension is back, the mind is agitated and restless, and discouragement arises, feeling of unpleasantness about our meditation, you know, all this doubt about ourselves and our ability starts to come into our mind. And just seeing how much of our life moves back and forth between the poles of attraction and aversion, feeling positive and feeling negative, these different feelings that move through us all of the time. In fact, every state, every moment, every moment of our consciousness has a feeling that's associated with it. Every moment. Like right now, you have a feeling associated with this moment of consciousness right now. Feeling of liking, feeling of disliking, or a neutral feeling, where the mind is feeling neither very attracted nor averted. Not disliking, not liking, not feeling pleasant, not feeling unpleasant, but more in a neutral kind of state. And the neutral kind of state is a very, very important state. Important because it's not as obvious as the attraction and the aversion. When you're feeling aversion, when you're feeling negativity, usually it's pretty obvious because it's an unpleasant feeling in the mind. And an unpleasant feeling in the mind, it kind of gives this, you know, and you know it's there. Like when you're feeling angry, you pretty much know that you're in an angry state because the feeling is so obvious. And the feeling is, you know, for some people, more intense for other people, a little bit less intense. But the more that you become aware of yourself, the more that you become familiar with the averted feeling, the negative feeling in the mind. When you're feeling something like, when you're feeling pleasant feelings within the mind, when you're feeling happy feelings, when you're feeling good feelings within the mind, pleasant feelings within the mind, they also tend to be pretty obvious to you especially as you develop your awareness and become aware of, of pleasant feeling when it arises, pleasant sensation in the body or pleasant feelings 
within the mind. And oftentimes, you know, they go directly together. When you taste something good, pleasant sensation gives rise oftentimes to a pleasant feeling within, within the mind. You watch a good movie, gives rise to a pleasant feeling within the mind. You know, and those pleasant feelings can become obvious to you. But the neutral kind of feeling that is neither obviously pleasant nor unpleasant can sometimes be much more obscure. And what happens is that if we're not aware of the neutral feeling, it tends to lead the mind more into a state of absent-mindedness or mindlessness. It's because there's nothing for the mind to grasp onto or, or identify with as being pleasant or unpleasant, which are more at the polarities, more at the extremes. So the neutral feeling is more in the middle. And that middle ground can sometimes be more unnoticeable to us. And when we're in more of that neutral ground of feeling, then what it can give rise to is a sense of blandness or boredom in the mind. Boredom because the mind is not in some way being stimulated by something that is obviously pleasant or unpleasant. So because it's not being stimulated in some way by something that's pleasant or unpleasant, and it's in the middle, then there's this kind of sense of, this gray kind of feeling of, uh, you know? It's like when, if you're, if, if you're sitting here, and nothing much seems to be happening. You don't feel very much sensation in the body, obvious sensation in the body. Your body is neither in pain, nor is it in rapture and bliss. Right? You're not experiencing a lot of turnover of thoughts in the mind. There doesn't seem to be a lot of thinking going on. And so you're just kind of there, but there doesn't seem to be much happening. Okay, so that neutral state of body and mind, if you're not aware of it, can give rise to this feeling of boredom or blandness, as some people tend to describe it. And if you're at home and you have the kind of lifestyle in which you're always busy doing things, being stimulated all the time, and all of a sudden you come into an environment such as this, and you don't have that stimulation, there's a deprivation of stimulation, then the state that you might be experiencing is this kind of very neutral, boring kind of state. A state of mind that is very frequent for instance, in monasteries, where there's not a lot of stimulation, outer stimulation, around you. And so because there's not a lot that's impinging upon the senses, in terms of seeing and hearing and tasting and feeling and all of that, because there's not a lot of impinging upon the senses, the mind moves into a very neutral state of being. And when you're in that neutral state of being like that, at first, you don't appreciate it as being peace. You don't appreciate it for what it can give, which is a sense of contentment and a sense of peace, if you allow yourself to open to it. Well, what tends to happen is you become dissatisfied with that neutral state because the mind is so conditioned to want to feel something at one of the polarities of attraction or aversion. You know, we're so conditioned to that. If you have a negative kind of mind, 
then a lot, you know, it's as though the mind um, searches or thrives upon negative feeling. It gets so conditioned into it. You know, you might, for instance, have a negative image of yourself that for a long time you nurture unconsciously, feeling negative about yourself. You don't like yourself. You don't like where you look. You don't, you don't think you're intelligent. Well, you don't like your sexuality or whatever. You know, and the mind grasps hold of this sense of aversion and creates a self-image around it as being who you are. You know, and this is, you, know, you think that you are these feelings and these thoughts and this image that gets created as a result of the structure that feeling and thought creates. You know, feeling, conditioning thought. Thought creating feel, more feelings within ourselves. You know, and all of that superstructure creating a certain image of who we are. You know, and not liking ourselves. And so it, it perpetuates itself in consciousness. The whole conditioning process does. So you come to a meditation retreat, and what you may experience is all of these feelings of unworthiness, of self-hate, of self-negativity, of not liking yourself, not thinking you're worthy, not thinking you're good, not thinking you're lovable, all these kinds of feelings that we have. And you come to a retreat, and it, become, it can become very, very intense. Even if you know that it's there, still, because of the power of the awareness and the focus upon yourself, it can tend to intensify it, intensify it, intensify it, and build it up more and more so that you experience it to intenser and intenser levels. That's good. Good in the sense that you're seeing into the conditioned state, the conditioned mind, and seeing how conditioned our existence can be extraordinarily conditioned. Even if there's a part of your mind that knows this is not who you are. In truth, this is not who you are because you've had a glimpse of that insight before, you know, or because somebody else has told you that you are lovable, or because you've read it in a book that you are not the body, you are not the feelings, you are not the mind, whatever. But still, the experience as you're sitting is that all of this kind of negativity, feeling of unworthiness, etc., might come up very strongly. And it's all because it's so deeply conditioned into the mind. It's almost as though the mind has to unravel itself in the meditation. It has to go through a process of um, unspinning, undoing some of the conditioning in order for us to be able to see more clearly. Because the sense of self, of I, of me, and the image that we have can be so concrete because of the whole conditioning process. And then as from moment to moment, as you see the thoughts arise, as you see the feelings arise, and watching them from moment to moment, and not grasping hold of them, which is what we do before the conditioned response, is to grasp hold of them, is to cling to them, is to believe the image, is to seize on to the feelings and the thoughts, which holds up the whole structure of the conditioned mind. But moment to moment, as the mind is present, 
and sees the thought arising. It just sees, sees it as a thought. In that moment, just a thought, and does not hold on to it. Then you're not helping to feed into that image. You're not helping to reinforce the conditioning process. When the feeling of aversion arises, if you, you can just see it as aversion, you can feel it in your body, as sensation, as unpleasant sensation in the body. You can feel it, you can see it as a thought in the mind. If you're not grasping hold of it, if you're just seeing it as just being a thought arising within the mind, then you're not helping to, again, support the conditioned phenomenon that's arising. In, in a way, what's happening is the mind is becoming deconditioned or deprogrammed because we're not grasping and we're not clinging out of ignorance. It's the ignorance within the mind, which is it's called avijja. Avijja means, the translation of avijja means not knowing. Okay? Not knowing means when we have these feelings that arise within ourselves, we don't see them for what they are. And we don't understand what they are. And therefore, the grasping hold of them creates suffering. And that's why it's called ignorance. Vija is knowledge, is understanding, is self-knowledge and self-understanding, which comes when we see the truth of how things are when we see the feeling as just being a feeling, when we see the thought as just being a thought, and seeing it arise, not holding on to it, and not identifying with it, it helps to break down this very solid feeling that we have within ourselves that this is who I am, that this is me. It can be a very how we say devastating thought, especially you know for anyone who has experienced a, a lot you know mental pain in their life because of the image that they have of themselves, that this is the way that I'm going to be forever or this is the way that my life is going to be forever. You know, eternalizing existence, eternalizing conditioned existence because of buying into an image of who we are, or buying into um, a, uh, a concept of our life and thinking that this is the way it's always going to be. Meditation becomes a tool in which we can look directly into our conditioned existence, looking directly into it, seeing very, very clearly into it on a moment-to-moment level, on the level of the body, seeing directly into the body, seeing directly into feelings, as each one arises. If you know that a feeling arises in every moment, and you can be prepared. And at any moment you can say to yourself, what am I feeling right now? Is there, a, what, is there attraction in the mind? Is there aversion within the mind? Is there pleasant feeling in the mind? Is there unpleasant feeling in the mind? If there's not, 
then you must be in a neutral state. And knowing that neutral state, that neutral feeling, means that there's awareness that's present. Then vija is present. Then understanding and clear comprehension is present. And that's what the whole thrust of meditation is to have that kind of presence of mind that is able to be aware of what is actually taking place in the moment. And in doing that, then we don't get so swayed from side to side by pleasure and pain and attraction and aversion. If the mind is not kind of moving back and forth between these two extremes that create pain for ourselves, that create unnecessary suffering. So, Hengai Naigai, Hen Vedana, Naivedana. Then Hen Chit Nai Chit. Hen Chit Nai Chit means to see the mind in the mind. How do you see the mind in the mind? If only I could see one mind, never mind two minds. Seeing the mind in the mind meaning, again, coming very, very close into the mental experience, not separating away from the experience to the point where there is not the sense of um, seeing directly into the mind. So part of that means to see how our mind has been conditioned. It's been conditioned in, in many ways. Conditioned by our parents' values. That's a big way that our mind is conditioned, very from early on. I mean, even the whole process of conditioning before that. And if you, if you look into the concept, the idea, or the reality, whatever, of having lived in a past life, past lives, and that we are conditioned by previous experience, and that what is getting transferred from one lifetime to another is certain mental formations, or karma formations, as they're called, that are impressions within the mind. And that the way that our mind is conditioned and structured right now may not have anything to do with our present life experience, or may not be totally conditioned by this lifetime experience, but by the way that our mind was, our experiences were in a previous lifetime so that we don't come into this life just with tabula rasa, clear mind, but rather that there is some conditioning elements that may already be present right as we arrive in the womb. You know? And that early on in life, there's a lot of conditioning that goes on. You know, how we're related to by our parents, you know, by our brothers and sisters, you know, by the educational system and what we learn there, by our religious training. You know, a lot, the whole conditioning process goes on. You know, if our parents are very fearful or very insecure, you know, how that affects us as children. You know, if, if our mother is, experiences a lot of sadness and grief, that impacts upon us as well. That conditions our own mind. 
our own experience. So this conditioning process is passed on, you know, and along the way, you know, whatever we, whatever forces are at work that contribute to the conditioning is what we experience as we, as we meditate. So the insight, or the insights that we may have at the beginning of a retreat or as we move through the retreat is how conditioned our mind can be. And that's very important to see. It's, a, it's an important insight to have, to see how deeply the, the, the mind is conditioned and then to see how the whole process of conditioning takes place, which is what we're going to be discussing as the week progresses in dependent origination, is what actually takes place within the mind, the whole process of the 12 steps of dependent origination, and how one step conditions another step, how contact conditions feeling, how feeling conditions craving, how craving conditions clinging, how clinging conditions becoming, how becoming conditions suffering, etc., etc. That there's a whole line of events in a chain called dependent origination that takes place within us from moment to moment, which is the whole conditioning process itself. And the last one. See the Dharma in the Dharma, or as it's sometimes called, see mind objects in mind objects. Seeing mind objects in mind objects meaning our different perceptions that we have. To see with clarity perception as it's arising and ceasing each moment. For instance, right now, when you're listening to me, there is the body, there is a sense door of the ear, there is consciousness or awareness present, and then sound and listening arises. Or you're looking at me, there's a sense of the eye, there's awareness or consciousness present. There's the object, myself here, and so there's seeing. So within the mind itself, the mind being a sense door, thought arises within the mind. Thought is the object as, as it arises. It might be a memory of some kind. And so there's mental perception that takes place. Each one of our senses, as long as there's a sense door, there's the object, there is consciousness or awareness present, then when the three of those come together, sense door, sense object, and awareness or consciousness, when they are present, then there is seeing, and there is hearing, and there is tasting, and there is seeing, and there is feeling, and there is thinking. And that is going on moment to moment to moment. Each moment of our life, that's taking place. Seeing that moment to moment and seeing it very clearly helps us to see the arising and the ceasing of the different aggregates of our being. One time there was a, a, an ascetic, his name was Bahia, who lived in 
near central India, and he thought he was enlightened. And so he was, as is the tradition in India, um, where, in, especially in former times, where debate um, was uh, uh, a way of discussing the Dharma and also measuring one's own understanding, he was talking about his, what he felt was his realization to some other ascetics, some other sadhus, holy men. And as he was talking, these other holy men said, this man is not enlightened. You know, you still have some ways to go. So they suggested that he go see the Buddha, who was living in a monastery near Benares. And he had to walk, and he walked a long ways to get to where the Buddha was staying. He had to go from village to village to finally find him. And when he arrived at the monastery where he was supposed to be, um, the attendant at the monastery said that the Buddha and the other monks were on alms round at that time. So he went into the town to try and find him. And then he saw a long line of monks and a very stately being at the front, which must have been the Buddha. So he went up to the Buddha and he went down and he bowed three times to the Buddha. And he said, please, Gautama, I've come a long way and I wish to have the teachings. And the Buddha said, now is not the appropriate time because we're on alms round. So why don't you just wait back at the monastery and when I get back, then I'll be able to give you the teachings. So the Buddha walked on with the monks behind him. And turned the corner and then again, there's Bahia. Comes up and he prostrates three times and says, please give me the teachings. And the Buddha said, this is not the right time for it, you know when we get back. And then again, the same thing happened. And he prostrated three times. And as is the tradition in Asia, when you prostrate three times like that, what you ask for, you get. So the Buddha said, you know, okay, listen, this is the essence of the teachings. He said, in what is seen, there is just to you what is seen. In what you hear, there is just what is heard. In what you think, there is just the thought. In what you cognize or what you perceive through your senses, there is just that. There is just cognition. There is just perception. And that is all. That is the essence of the teachings. Just to see things as they are. It's called suchness. Just to see things as they are. Just to see a thought as a thought, just to see a feeling as a feeling, see the body as a body, sensation as sensation, to see a visual image for what it is, as an image, a sound as a sound. You know, that if there is that kind of presence of mind and clarity that is able to see things from moment to moment, meditation becomes very, very simple. It's not something that is difficult or complicated at all. Not in the least. It's not. It's very, very simple. It's just seeing the truth of what is from moment to moment to moment, which is very simple and very basic. Perhaps not easy to do because what happens is we get caught into the whole conditioned process of the body and the mind. 
We grasp after the thoughts. We grasp after feelings. We grasp after image. We identify with the images and the whole process. And because of that grasping and that clinging and the identifying within the mind, it contorts everything. It distorts everything. It makes us do things that we don't want to do. It sends us after things which we really don't want to go after. We avoid when we shouldn't avoid. Because we're not just seeing things for the way that they are, from moment to moment to moment. Truly, the practice is a very simple one. It's a very basic one. And it's good to keep it that way. Very simple, very, very basic. You know, there doesn't have to be a lot of mental overway, overlay. You don't have to analyze. You don't have to go into um, attempting to understand anything other than what is right now. Everything is found right now in the present moment. And it's that kind of clarity. It's that kind of understanding which is freeing. It's freeing because we're not getting lost out of ignorance in the conditioned state, into conditioned existence, but seeing it for what it is. So, during the next talk or two, we're going to be and also our dialogues, which we'll be having, we'll be discussing the process of dependent origination. Let's just have a moment to sit and, and reflect, and then if you have some, some questions, we can discuss that. The question was, if you didn't hear it in the back, um, are there some, is there a way to identify the neutral state? Because what tends to happen is that when you're in that neutral state, the mind drifts and moves into a fantasy of some kind or um, creates some kind of image out of the neutral state because it's not grasping or clinging onto something that is obviously pleasant or unpleasant. And, is there a way of identifying the neutral state? Um, one way is just to have the mind present and knowing if you're in that neutral state to begin with. Okay, if I say that each moment of consciousness has a feeling that's associated with it, then if the mind is obviously not in a pleasant or unpleasant state, then it's in a neutral state. And you can sense that in your meditation as well, you know, where. Um, the mind doesn't seem to be going to either extreme in any sense at all. Um, so there's just a kind of neutral feeling that's, take, that's taking place. Um, 
is there a way of identifying? Does anybody from their own experience have any suggestions? Yeah, Russell. Well, that's what sometimes happens. What sometimes happens when you're in a neutral state is the dissatisfaction or the boredom with the neutral state, the way that you get out of it is to create a fantasy or a pleasant thought. By creating the pleasant thought in the mind, you start to create pleasant feelings within the mind. So from that neutral state, you'll start to think about some kind of a scenario, you know, sexual fantasy, food fantasy, you know, something that you're going to do when you leave the retreat, for instance. You know, when you're in that kind of neutral state, your mind will start to think about something. When you start to think about something like that, then pleasant feelings start to arise, you see, and that moves you out of the neutral state which you experienced as being on some level, consciously or unconsciously, as being boring, you move out of that into, you know, uh, more extreme, pleasant feelings, pleasant thoughts. Mm-hmm. Boredom itself? An unpleasant state? Yeah, I mean, it's... It, some people experience, yeah, people experience boredom as a, a dissatisfactory state. By its very nature, it's dissatisfactory. When you're feeling bored, you know, you don't feel as though enough is going on in your life, like you're getting enough, like something's happening. I mean, that's oftentimes what uh, boredom is. And it is a dissatisfactory state, yes. And the, the lack of awareness of it is suffering to a certain degree. Yeah, Sarah. It's possible that there are two kinds of uh, neutral states in the mind. One is when the mind is quite dull. Mm-hmm. It's hard to perceive things. But there's another kind of neutrality which comes from equanimity. And the mind is uh, just very quiet and balanced and is not being brought in one way or the other. Mm-hmm. It can be quite clear. Mm-hmm. And all of that isn't specifically present. Mm-hmm. It's a very satisfying state. Yes. 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 Very good point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be suspicious of uh, um, the, in the original question, I think the question you mentioned that there was a neutral state and then there was a fantasy, but he wasn't sure it was a neutral state, so how did mm-hmm. there was a neutral state creating fantasy? And then he sort of based the whole discussion around that. Um, it seems to me that not, if you know it's a neutral state, then you solve the problem. And if you don't know it's a neutral state, you don't know that that's what's creating the fantasy. You're just guessing. Um, and I found uh, uh, in my practice that 
the best way to deal with this situation of kind of waking up when I was in a fantasy and not really knowing how it got started was to um, check in with my body, just sort of say, okay, just put the fantasy on hold for a second, see what's going on. Mm -hmm. And that process of coming back, letting go of the fantasy and coming back that way, mm -hmm. began to decondition the um, ignoring of the state which was creating the fantasy. Mm -hmm. So that gradually I sort of got closer and closer to the point where fantasy would take off. Mm -hmm. The awareness of it. Mm -hmm. And was able to see. So you come back into your body as a, a reference point? Coming back into the body into the sort of feeling level. Mm -hmm. Sort of close to the physical feeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because the fantasy is, is very mental. You know, and so coming back into the body that way can, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I, I try to do that too, when I feel like I'm going off or into a negative direction. I just try to scan my body, like you once mentioned. But then all of it is I feel pain, and pain leads back to the negative. Mm -hmm. Moving on, I don't know how to go about the process of stopping the fantasy or mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, perhaps if you if you see what is predominant each moment, you know, if 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 you're if you come into your body and you start to experience unpleasant sensation in the body.